Thank you for downloading this edition of Against the Odds. This recording lasts for approximately 60 minutes and is copyright. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk or visit the Against the Odds page on the philip-anderson.co.uk website. Welcome to Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast profiling the lives of individuals who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. A very warm welcome to the final part of this two-part podcast, Smashing Blindness, with my guest Wayne Pugh. The story so far. My head got stuck in the left-hand side of the suspension of the car. I ended up with 567 stitches on the left-hand side of my head. I was in intensive care for 18 months. I'd say a lot of issues while at school with diabetes. There was times where I refused to take it and I smashed my insulin pens because I just wanted to be normal like everyone else. The idea of me losing my sight, I didn't just lose my sight. I lost the partner I was with, I lost my car, I lost friends, I lost my job, I lost everything I'd ever known. In this, the final part of this two-part podcast, we learn just how successful Wayne's transplants were, starting with his kidney. I was rushed into hospital after a diabetic fit. I was told by the doctor that come and spoke to me that my kidneys were shutting down. The doctor actually said to me, he believed I'd got less than four days to live. Seeing that there were no shortage of volunteers, given the number of family members who had put themselves forward, in which his older brother Craig proved to be the perfect match. I guess I was petrified for him. He'd got two kids and he's, he's put himself into hospital to save my life. You may find certain aspects of what you're about to hear distressing. In all honesty, my brother ended up in agony after the operation because whatever they'd done, they'd twisted his bowels. Smashing Blindness, the final chapter. I did kidney dialysis for 18 months, which was one of the hardest points in my life because I've had friends who've been on kidney dialysis and not come out of it. And I suppose as much as I wanted to give up on life, I didn't once I decided I was going to fight. Knowing that my brother and all my family were going through so much heartache, I needed to fight some more. So I went on to the kidney dialysis and it turned me into someone I've never known. I'd never got any strength. I basically say to people, I slept for 18 months in my life. And then finding out six months before the actual operation of me to receive my brother's kidney, that it was actually on my mum's birthday, which was just, in all honesty, to me, it was like a sign that it, it was the right thing to do. But at the same time, I panicked for my mum 
and I panicked for the whole family because if it was that it didn't work for me, it had turned into a disastrous day for the family. How can you destroy someone's birthday when they're so special to you? We travelled down the day before my mum's birthday to Birmingham Queen Elizabeth and I remember saying to my brother, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. I won't love you any less. I can understand it, I can stay on the list and I can wait. But my brother was determined all the way through it. He was adamant I was having it no matter what. And we went into separate wards and that night, I was texting him and ringing him and talking to him on the phone. Just kept on saying to him, you haven't got to do it. No one will judge you for it if you don't want to. I guess I was petrified for him. He's got two kids and he's he's put himself into hospital to save my life. And me, I've got no kids. I, I couldn't see why he was risking his life for me. And I suppose... Right there and then, I looked to the negative things in life because when you look back, everything's always gone wrong. So what would make this part any better? I suppose I looked at it like my brother felt like he'd got to do it because that's what you do for your family. And my brother's already been through his own traumas in his life. They do say blood's thicker than water. And it definitely is. It definitely is. But the morning of the operation, my brother went down at nine o'clock and one of the nurses come in to tell me that he'd gone down. And I remember lying in the bed and I'd got a set of keys with me and I'd just got the, the ring around my finger. And I remember I must have spun that a million times around my finger because I couldn't stop in my head. I'd just got my brother in my head, and although I didn't believe in God, for the couple of hours that my brother was actually having his operation, I think I spoke to God all the way through. Did the power of prayer help on that occasion? I don't know if it helped, but he come through it. I'd say that the one thing that'll sit in my head, he come through it. How much of a risk... Was he taking? In all honesty, they say that it's an easy, straightforward operation. My brother had had a lot of tests done beforehand because we went through 18 months of tests and they actually said that he was extremely fit. The only risk was my brother could be donating his kidney to me and upon opening me, it might not be able to be fitted to me the choice was then if he hadn't gone for me did he want to give it to someone else in all honesty my brother ended up in agony after the operation because whatever they'd done they'd twisted his bowels but nobody actually told me while I was in hospital that sits in my head every day he went through an, an awful lot for me to do it do you know what I mean? It was, mm. you don't put yourself in that amount of pain, not for nothing. 
I know I had my calling. The porters come in. They started moving the bed with me on it and tears just falling. I'd never had a transplant before. I'd been in hospital before. I'd had numerous operations with me, road traffic accidents, but nothing was ever like this before. And I remember him walking me down and my mum and dad walked with me. And my dad just kept telling me he loved me just the same as my mum. And I remember getting to the actual theatre and we were just outside the theatre and the nurse come out to me and he says, right, Wayne, you're coming in now. And I'll never forget, my dad held my hand and shoot my hand. Just told me he loved me. And my mum kissed me and as she was pulling her face away, I felt a tear hit my head. And I just said to him, I'll be back soon, don't worry. I'll never forget waking up after that and thinking to myself, as it worked, and she said, I, I didn't know a single thing. <laughs> I was in extreme pain. My mum had sat behind my bed for the whole time and she just kept on pushing the button to push morphine into my body. So even while I was asleep, I was getting the morphine in me. My dad was with my brother. I suppose my dad was worried about me and my mum was panicking about my brother, but they just stayed with us and did the best they could actually do. But it was a, a an absolute major success. And sighs of relief all round. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think my brother was home five days after the transplant and I came home seven days after the transplant but then was rushed back in two days later because the scar popped open and spent another week in the Birmingham Queen Elizabeth. What happened after that? Everything was going fantastic. I had to go to the kidney ward at the hospital every day. Then it went to every week. Then it went to every month. I'd have numerous amounts of tests just to make sure everything's going okay. I think it was three years had passed. One day I had a phone call from the hospital. I was being asked to go to Manchester's renal team. I never thought anything about it. And as always, the family got together and they're like, right, we're all coming up. And I was informed that my diabetes, with it being so aggressive, was killing my brother's kidney slowly. They were saying that I've got to go forward for a pancreas transplant. Mine had got to the actual point from what the doctor had said to me that I've got a matter of months with my brother's kidney if I didn't go on the list to have the pancreas done. In the hospital, the doctor turned round and he said, you're in desperate need of a pancreas transplant, but you've got a 30% chance in pulling through while having the operation. There was a way I could have lost my brother's kidney also, and I could have been back on dialysis. Or the kidney may not have worked after, and the pancreas wouldn't have worked either. How big of a decision was it for you to make at that time? In all honesty, Philip, I didn't make the decision myself at all. Because my brother had gone through such a trauma 
giving me his kidney. I, I put the choice into my brother's hands and I told him he'd got to make the decision. And he just said, well, you best put his name on the list then because I know it's all weird and it'd be fine. I think it was six months later, I had a phone call at three o'clock in the morning at home. They'd actually got a pancreas for me. I was asked to not have anything to eat and to make me way to Manchester Royal Infirmary. I rang my mum and dad at that time to, to inform them what was going on. We travelled up, and as we're travelling up to Manchester, I was telling my mum and dad what I wanted for my funeral and how I wanted things to pan out with it. Um, I'm crying myself, Wayne. It's it's hard to imagine. It's it's really not something um, you should have to do. It's really, really not. But my mum and dad just, I think they just ignored every word I was saying and just said, yeah. Oh. Oh. And I think that's all that, that they could do, to be honest with you. We get there. We did everything. We wired me all up. I had blood tests done. And I got all my family around me. The surgeon come to me and told me that the operation wasn't going to go ahead today. And the relief I felt was unreal. <sighs> Although I needed this operation, I also needed to just go back home and relax. So we travelled back to Stoke-on-Trent to be in the house for 15 minutes. And I got another phone call from Manchester Royal Infirmary. Can you make your way back down? We've got another pancreas. Now, you don't normally get offered an organ every day of the week. But to be offered two in one day is unknown of, really. I'll admit it, I actually said to the nurse, can't you give it to someone else? Because the day had took it out of me. But I rang my mum and dad, and my dad just said to me, we're getting the car out of the garage, run away. So I rang the hospital back, and I apologised to the nurse. And I said, we were on our way back down. We got back there, I think it was about 8 o'clock at night because we had travel through rush hour traffic. And we found out the pancreas was coming from London at the time and it was in a, a donor taxi. They got me all ready. In my head, I was thinking about two people that must have passed on. I just felt for their families, then it must have been one o'clock in the morning, we were told that the the organ was meant to be turning up soon. My dad was making me laugh by being who he is. He kept marching around the place like he's, he's, he was he was waiting for the taxi, so he kept on going to the front of the building, and he was like he was going to guide the guy in with the organ. He would have paid him the biggest tip that day for the uh, for the uh, trouble. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And the organ arrived at two o'clock in the morning. Just saying to me, mum and dad, that 
the time when they took me down to the theatre. How do you not say goodbye to him if you're not going to come back? If you don't know it. Although I didn't want to cry in front of him. I couldn't do anything, but I remember saying it to him like it was yesterday. I said, I will be back. But just remember, I love you more than anything. Because you hear them odds and you just, you just don't know. They took me into the anaesthetist and she just said to me, she's like, you're going to go under now. We're going to do this operation for you. It's going to be a success. And I was like, I hope so. I said, but please be here when I wake up in the morning. I said, I could do with some ketamine for the pain. <laughs> it was, I was just trying to joke. Of course. It, it, was, it was just trying to turn it into a bit of a thing because I was crying my eyes out at the time. I was out for the count. The next second, I'm waking up. And I just remember hearing beeping. The anaesthetist was right next to me. And he had to say to whoever she was with, I think you'll be waking up soon. We can see movements. <sighs> and the first words that come out of my mouth was, have you got that bottle of ketamine for me then? Oh, you'd, you'd remembered. Oh. <laughs> 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 well done you but then <laughs> but then I said to her I said I need a phone and he talked to me family and this um, was minutes after you coming round yeah wow yeah she said to me and just let me do your obs she says and I'll get you a phone the next second another nurse had turned up with a phone and she said do you know the number and of course, I know the number. I rang my mum and dad's house because they'd travelled back to Stoke-on-Trent <laughs> because they'd not brought anything with them. They'd got nothing there. They didn't know what was going to happen. I remember dialing the number and holding the phone next to me and I'm thinking, so, I'm here. My dad answered the phone. He's like, hello? And I just remember saying to him, I'm alive, dad. And... <laughs> He's like, is that you, Wayne? And I'm like, yeah. He says, where are you? I said, I'm in recovery. I've had the off. I heard him crying. And then I could hear my mum in the background because they're both still in bed. But then they told me that they didn't think I'd be out for Christmas Day. They thought I was going to have to stay in hospital over Christmas Day. And I want to be with my family. I couldn't miss a Christmas with them. It'd be the hardest thing for me to do. And how far off Christmas um, were you when they told you that? 14 days. So how did you manage to work that then? So it worked to your advantage that you got out? What happened? When I had the kidney transplant, I kind of lay in bed and woe is me. I wanted the painkillers to do the work for me. But after having the pancreas, I knew I'd got to get out of bed. I'd got to try and move. I'd got to take little steps. And that's what I did. From the first second as they allowed me out of the bed, that first day they just wanted me set up. And I was adamant I was going to stand. And did you? And I did. Not for long. Doesn't matter. I stood up. You did it. Yeah, I stood up. Then... 
my mum and dad come up the next day and the nurses were like, we need to get him out of bed. He's got to do some little walks. And I'd only walk to the end of my bed, but I'd walk straight back. It's so draining having a, a transplant, but you've got nothing. You've got no strength. You've got nothing in you at all. And I was doing little walks and I kept on doing them little walks and I kept asking the nurses if I could just do a little walk to the end of the the end of the rooms that I was in. I just kept on saying to the nurses, I need to be with my family for Christmas Day. And I was. I got home. Everything was fantastic. But my mum and dad were adamant, so I didn't go home and be on my own. <laughs> I got to go home to spend it with them. So they didn't worry about me even more. But it was a double celebration. Definitely, having been with my family on Christmas Day meant more to me than anything. Because that's what it's all about for me. It's about my family. Did you make a wish that Christmas? Just to enjoy the rest of my life and hopefully help others on my journey. Was there a point post the operation when it occurred to you just what you'd really been through and what the implications of it all were being honest I think about it an awful lot it's something that's forever going to be in my head but I I try not to look at how serious I know it was serious and it was my life but I try not to look at that side of it I, I try to look at I come out of it, the negative side of it that I could worry about or the positive side that I can live for. I know I've been through it and I know I live it every day and I take the medication to keep me alive every day of the week. I suppose as strong as I I like to say I am and I like to be, that will always be the weak side of me. That With that, that one operation... I'd most probably give up on myself at that time because I didn't think I was going to be pulling through it. What about the relationship, the chemistry between your brother? Me and my brother have always been inseparable. Even to this day, we'll never be anything but. We might not be in each other's pockets anymore and I might not live with him now. But I know if I rang him now and said I need him, he'd be here straight away. And vice versa, I would imagine. No, certainly. I'd, I'd do anything for him. If I, if I could do it, I'd do it. Just before you went under the anaesthetic, do you remember who the last face was you saw in your mind? Hard for me to say, but it was my nephew. Because he's followed me on all these journeys. And I've got an inseparable bond with with my nephew. I see him as a young boy from what I remember when I got my sight. And a child shouldn't have to go through that. 
and everything he's gone through. I don't know. It, I just hoped and prayed it, it, it come true, but I'd come through it. Hmm. I suppose I'd have done anything right there and then. I, I talked to my nephew, like, even though he's 16 now, I talked to him like what he was one of my friends. Mm-hmm. I, I tell him everything. I tell him how I feel. I've always been dead honest with him. I've never said anything like that to him because I don't know. I don't know why I wouldn't say it to him, but he knows how much I, I worship him. Perhaps sometimes things are best left unsaid. Yeah. Maybe one day when I think it's right, I still think, although he's 16 and I know he's a young man, he's still my nephew to me and he's still that little baby that I remember taking out and just looking after him, being there for. Well done, Wayne. Thank you. What an incredible story. And in a moment, we find out how Wayne adjusted to life with the transplants and what they came to mean to him as someone living with diabetes. Where still to come? His legacy track? And his guide dog fundraising campaign? And whether he made it to the top of Ben Nevis? Each person who climbed with me, they all said, you're working three times as hard as we all are. If you have a story of your own to share, or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk. The exact day as I climbed by Nevis, the sun was shiny and the weather was sweet. There was seven of us from Scotland. As much as I couldn't see the scenery, you know it's beautiful by the smells. Climbing it, I was doing the sea grip with two people and I was got my hands on their elbows. One person would call out the steps for me and they'd say, like, it's it's a long step, it's a high step. And we got into a bit of a routine. I'd say everything that's ever faced me, it hasn't been something I've ever chosen. I didn't choose to get run over. I didn't choose to lose the sight. So... Ben Nevis is my challenge. Everything else has given me a pain and I felt it. And it was just like Ben Nevis. I had the pain all the way. But this time it was something that I'd picked for the first time in my life. I wanted to prove to myself nothing could stop me. I 
I tried my best for most of the mountain to not ask where we were until getting to the top where I was physically, mentally drained. That's when more and more I started saying, are we there yet? How far have we got to go? Throughout the programme, Wayne, you've spoken very openly about the traumas in your life and have shared one or two intimate moments with us. And I wondered for the next few minutes whether you wouldn't mind us just concentrating on the rehabilitation, because doubtless coming to terms with everything that you've had to adjust to in your life has been no mean feat, to say the least. Starting with your transplants, because as we were hearing, your brother Craig had very generously gifted you one of his kidneys. And you ended up receiving two offers of a pancreas, the last one coming all the way from London at 1am in the morning. And I wondered, since receiving these transplants, how have you come to look upon your diabetes now? If it is, you're still classed as diabetic, that is. I don't produce my own insulin, but the transplanted pancreas does produce insulin for me. So I don't inject four times a day any longer. And I haven't done since having the transplant. But am I still classed as diabetic? Yes. Although the hospital have said they will only get in contact with me every 12 months to see how I'm doing and what my blood sugars still are. Because I am asked to do my blood sugars once a week still, just so I know it doesn't go below four and over eight because if it goes over eight or under four there could be an issue with the transplanted pancreas what does the pancreas mean to me now it's a different freedom of life again for a massive amount of time since i was 12 years old i've injected every single day of the week i've had to live to a stringent diet where now I don't have to think about I've got my own for this time to do an injection or have I got enough needles with me so I can do all my injections when I go out today. It's given me a whole lot of freedom having the transplant that I've got today. So it's given me my life back. Are the things you have to consider, do you still have to be very careful? I can't go out and start eating lots of sugary foods massively, but I was told by my doctor that I'd got to start drinking fizzy drinks, sugary drinks again, not consistently and all of the time, but I had got to take in a certain amount of sugar for the pancreas itself. There are certain provisions I do have to take and I've got to intake a certain amount of sugar instead of how I used to be very strict with it. Now I can lapse a little bit and start eating a bit more and having a bit more freedom with the foods that I now intake. What are some of the favourite foods you are eating at the moment and how does that differ from the food you were eating when you were following a very stringent diet sheet, so to speak? Well, the foods that I'm eating now, to be honest with you, 
they really haven't changed that much since being 12 years old and being on a strict diet. Now, I really haven't changed that much. Every now and then, I might have the odd bar of chocolate, which I'm not really used to. I had a takeaway the other night and I've never really drank tango because I don't know if they do a diet one. So I've got a can of tango in the fridge and I suppose one day I will drink the can of tango because I remember drinking it when I was a young kid and I used to like it and I wonder if the taste has now changed. Other than I eat more meat now since having the transplants, but they do say, and I don't know how true this is, but when you've had a transplanted organ off someone, you can pick up some of their eating habits and stuff like that. Since having my kidney and the pancreas, I know my brother, he drinks a hell of a lot of coffee. And since having the kidney transplant, I started drinking coffee where I didn't drink it all my life. And since having the pancreas, I've now started eating a lot of meat where beforehand I'd only eat chicken before having the pancreas transplant. It's interesting you mention that because there is something in the in science called tissue memory. And when people have had transplants, it's possible that they inherit some of the characteristics of the donor. You've mentioned about forming a liking for coffee and forming a liking for meat. I was just wondering whether there are any other characteristics you feel you are displaying now, which you weren't displaying pre the transplants. I have thought about a lot of things to do with that. Like, have I changed a lot since I've been the transplant since? I'd say, yes, I've changed a lot, but I've gone through an awful lot of things in that time. It's not just the transplants. I seem a lot more confident than what I used to be, and I seem a lot more forward. From what I was led to believe, the only thing I found out about the donor of the pancreas was he rode a motorbike and he was a very fast person in life. Now, I would have thought riding a motorbike and being fast on the motorbike would make you very confident. I couldn't say for definite whether it was because of the transplants. Can you tell me a little bit about how it's affected your life expectancy now? To be honest with you, I was told I'd got four days left to live and I've gone 10 years the four days. I was told I'd got months to live and I've done five years since having the pancreas. So, I would say my life expectancy has grown. I am led to believe the medication that I'm on can sometimes bring in cancer. But I suppose I just try and look at the positive side of life. I, I wouldn't like to think to myself, because of this medication, I'm going to get this or this could happen. I just take every day as if it's my last and live it like it's my last because it's about enjoying life and not dwelling on what could be. Is there a tendency to be complacent now that you've had the transplants? Complacent, yes. I definitely could feel like sometimes I can be a bit complacent with things. 
there is times like when I've woke up in the morning and I think to myself, I'm pretty certain I've took my medication because it's an everyday thing. But at the same time, every day I'm living and I don't know how because I've lived off doing injections from what I can remember is all my life. I'd say sometimes I can forget to take it, but I'll sit sit there and I'll think to myself, have you took your tablets this morning? Or have you taken them tonight? And I've just got into a little routine now where my tablet boxes, once I take them, I put them on top of the cupboard. And if I haven't taken them, they're down on the counter. Presumably at one stage, the diabetes was your life and it had dominated your life to a degree. And yet some people say it's not a good idea to allow the condition to control you. Since the transplants and things have changed somewhat and you've made significant progress, how have you found that change of mindset and how has it affected you now and the way you think about your condition from what it used to be to what it is now? Diabetes changed my life in such a huge way and I don't think I'll ever get rid of the mindset that diabetes given me because I have got to look after myself with the foods I eat and with what I actually do. I would say it would be very hard for me now from going from 12 years old to 28 to not actually live that lifestyle of diabetes. Like, I still find myself counting carbs when I'm eating carbs. I will say I eat more meat now than what I ever did before because meat was a a free thing I could eat while being diabetic. So I didn't have to count the meat at all. I think it would be very hard to get my mindset out of what diabetes give me. I just don't have to do the injections and I haven't got to do the blood tests every day just to find out how much sugar's in my blood. Would you say you were furnished with as much information as you possibly could to help you appreciate your diabetes at that point? Do you think, you know, you were given enough information? I do believe the hospital did as good as they possibly could. The one thing I've always said is... I wish they'd have sat someone in front of me who's now in my position and said to me, this is what can happen to you. I'm diabetic. This is what's happened to me. I would love now to be able to go and sit with kids at 12 years old in the hospital and say, this is what's happened to me. If you don't look after yourself and if you don't help yourself, you could be in my position in just a short few years. I would say it hits harder if you see someone who's gone through transplants and losing the sight, all because of diabetes. Did you feel post the operations there was sufficient counselling, sufficient support to help you adjust to these transplants? Yes, I do, to be honest with you. I really, really do. The transplant nurses are absolutely amazing. I used to have to go to the hospital every single day after having me. Both transplants I've had. When I had the kidney, I used to be at the hospital every single day. 
to having blood tests being checked out, having the pancreas transplants. I used to have to travel up to Manchester to see their doctors daily and the hospital would pick me up in the ambulances and drop me back off at home. I've never had no counselling through them. But I think for me, having the transplant give me that smile back. I never thought I'd get to that point where two transplants, I was scared of one, but two transplants later and I've got my life back, that freedom that I lost because when the kidney went on me, I was at dialysis for five hours every other day. And now I've got the pancreas. I haven't got to think about the injections. I haven't got to think about dialysis. Now I can just live my life. But what I do have to do now is I do have to drink three litres of water a day, over three litres of water a day for my kidney. Um, And I'd say that's the only thing. Has it made you think differently about the sanctity of life? Yes, in a huge way. Before having any of the transplants, I felt like I was untouchable. Then after having the transplants, I guess I've got to see it in respect for life now. Every day is precious. No, I wouldn't take a risk with my life, but I still got that side of me that wants to try and get to 150 mile an hour again. I want to have the exciting points of life. So it's definitely made me think about life differently, but I've still got that thirst for life within me. I guess I've always heard the same life's way too short. And I guess I don't spend time thinking about what's happened. It's about moving forward in life and, and let's try and build on me. There's a reason I'm still here. And that's not to dwell on what's happened and not to worry about what could happen. It's about to start living my life. That's how I've made sense of life, just by saying, I don't want to think about it, I want to live it. Oh, absolutely, Wayne, I couldn't agree with you more. And we'll be continuing this theme of rehabilitation in a moment when we'll be looking at sight loss this time. That's after a word or two from your good self about your fundraising campaign and your mission to raise £5,000 for the Guide Dogs Association. As we once more cast you onto the slopes of Ben Nevis for you to recount your epic journey. And today we find out whether you actually made it to the top. Although I had climbed two mountains before, every mountain's different. The rocks are different. Everything's all over the place. In all honesty, it just kept on getting worse. My body was killing. My legs were hurting. My hip was hurting. My back was hurting. My knees were... The whole of my body was just in pain. But there was no way I was going to come off that mountain without reaching the top. The last ten minutes of the climb, I'll never forget the moment. And not knowing where I was, 
I've got Sergeant Christopher Wishart and PT Ben Maguire, both from the Three Scots Blackwatch Army. They actually stood next to me and I was like, I need five minutes. And both of them said to me, the top's inside. Come on. I hadn't got it in me and I just said to him, walk with me. And I ended up putting my arms over their shoulders and they kind of lifted me. So my feet were still on the floor, but so I'd not got carrying my own body weight. And I must have walked about five minutes with them like that. And then I said to him, I need to do this last bit. That's where I did that last bit and they both walked me up onto the key and at the top of Ben Nevis. It was such an experience to be stood there at Ben Nevis and having people cheering me who didn't know me. We'd done it for the challenge and naming events. I'll never forget coming off that key and the first thing I did is I rang my mum and dad. I got both of them. They were, they were just gobsmacked to me out and so happy here from you. It meant the world to me to be able to just sit there on the top of Ben Nevis and just chat to him for a couple of minutes. It meant everything just to tell him that I'd completed it. When I think it's safe to say that your life has been full of challenges almost from get-go. You were diagnosed with diabetes at age 12 and before that you were involved in a serious road traffic accident which brought with it all of its challenges. And then at the age of 28 you lost your sight suddenly due to glaucoma. You went from false sight to no sight overnight. And as we were hearing in part one of the podcast, you never left the house in X number of years and you didn't know really what the future held for you. But then you bounced back. How did you go from the individual who seldom left the house to this very independent person we see today? Being honest, such a fear hit you the second you lose your sight, because it's, how do I make a drink of tea? How do I get to the shop? How do I pick my clothes? How do you do the most smallest thing going, how do you over up? But before losing my sight, I would over up, but it was very rare I did. I did know what polishing a duster was, but did I ever use it? Not really. Cooking-wise, I wouldn't really do much. I can make a mean tomato soup in the microwave. I can do a mean beans on toast. Thanks to my mum, I've always been very eager as such a young person to do things. When she was cooking Sunday dinner on a Sunday, I'd sit there and I'd be like, so what did you put your chicken on for cookies? How long do you have it in? When she put sausages in the oven, how long do you put them in the oven for? How often she'd rotate them, what heat she'd put it on roughly. I'd start learning these things that would say to me, these are things that I've got to start picking up on to do it myself. 
Then going living on my own for the first time and starting actually cooking for myself, fairly crazy because like, I would have my mum with me at first, but she wouldn't be saying, right, you're doing that wrong, or wait there, you shouldn't be doing this. Going back six months ago, I was frying some mints off on my own. I set a towel on fire. It's that thing of accidents do happen, but you've got to look after yourself that little bit more now. Yes, I've caught my forearm on the inside the oven, but you've just got to take extra time. I'd say do it slower, not as much as a rush. It sounds like you've got a very practical mother there, Wayne, and I'm sure others listening would benefit from her years of experience. But in talking with other people who have lost their sight, one of the challenges they've said they face initially is laundry. What's your experience here? First time I ever washed my clothes on my own was at 33. I got a couple of bonpons around me dial to tell me where to put it. Like my mum had put a bump on on the start button and the stop button. So I knew which one that was. And then I got one on the power button. And it was a lot of the time I'd FaceTime my mum and I'd be saying, mum, can you tell me what this one is? Or can you tell me what this one is? And then over time, you, you do pick these things up. With my clothes, I try my best that if I've worn something, I wash that one thing and then I line that thing back up together. So a lot of my stuff, I know what I'm putting on quite easily. Have there been any embarrassing moments with your laundry? Yes, definitely. Yeah. I remember travelling Birmingham with both of my brothers. I got a Stoke City top on and um, I remember taking my jacket off when we reached Birmingham. And I got out the car and my brother was like, you've got your top on inside out, Wayne. <laughs> and I, I've had it where moments where people have said to me, Wayne, you've got on socks on. And I suppose the odd socks don't really bother me. But if I put my tops on inside out, I'd say that that can be quite embarrassing, to be honest with you. A lot of the times, like when you think with the T-shirt, you've got your tags on the inside, down the neck. You've got to look for them little things and sometimes I can mix and match. If I see someone and they say to me, you do know you've got like your black top on with your grey bottoms or the other way around, I'm like, oh, thank you. When I get home, I'll put them back together then because then you know you've got the right thing with the right thing because I like mine to match. But I don't think they're all too bad and you've got to be able to laugh at yourself and just joke with it and just it's life, isn't it? You've just got smile about it and keep looking forward. Oh, absolutely. And I must commend you on that positive mindset of yours, by the way, because what's that old saying? An optimist looks for a solution in every problem, and you've certainly done that. And as you know, I've been living with sight loss all my life, and the question I'm often asked is, would I want to see? To which I reply, and this is met with mixed reactions, by the way, no. Because well, my sight loss has made me the person I am today. And quite frankly, I really wouldn't want to relearn everything all over again. And I put it in as a caveat because I am interested in hearing from your perspective of someone who's gone from having had full sight to no sight, what you see as being the advantages as well as the disadvantages to being blind. I would say, and I've said it many a times and I've said it to many, many people, Losing my sight was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
losing my sight, yeah, it is a negative, but I'm still here and I'm still living my life after two transplants. I'm still living and breathing. I can still walk and talk. I still smile and I still laugh every day. That's the one that I concentrate on. But the disadvantage is I can't see my family's faces. Yeah, I do have to use FaceTime quite a lot sometimes. Like with Tim Food in my cupboard, I'm pretty certain my mum and dad get fed up of me FaceTiming them and saying, what's this? I've never used any outside help. I've never used the RNIB. I've never used any kind of sight loss charity to help me along the way. I didn't want help. That was the one thing. I never wanted anyone to help me, but my mum and dad did. When I first lost my sight, my dad got in touch with someone called Shua Start in Tunstall. They did me my white cane training. The woman from Shua Start, she gave me mum and dad this thing that you sit over the side of your cup and it, when you fill your cup up, it beeps. And my mum was like, yeah, you can have that. That'll help you make a drink of tea. And I was like, I'm not using that. I do use it now, but it most probably took me three, four years before I could decide using it. I would say for the first five years, I didn't want to accept I'd lost my sight. Although I'd learned so much in my life already about losing my sight, I'd still got to accept that deep down inside. And I would say since I accepted it, I took on a whole nother level. In them five years, I learned how to be confident enough to clean on my own. Now, that was a huge thing for me. Like your windowsill, if I've got anything in the window, I'll go across the window first to make sure there's nothing there. But I would say a lot of the time with sight loss, you end up cleaning more than you would normally if you got sight. Because if you can see it clean, you don't bother. Where with sight loss, I would say a lot of the time, in my head, it's dirty, so I'm cleaning it. To me, as long as I've wiped over it and I've, give, I've gone over it with my fingers first to feel if there's any, I don't know, ring marks on the windowsill, I'll wipe over it or give it a good rub down where that is to make certain it's gone. Are you house proud? Yes, very house proud, to be honest with you. I love my house. It's been a very hard transition moving from my old property into my new property. I've walked into a hell of a lot of walls. I have had a few marks on my face from hitting door edges. You do get there eventually, but I would say it takes time to learn where you are. In somewhere, our minds work off a memory pattern. And in our heads, we build up a certain memory of where we are and what we do by how many footsteps you take and no it's not like I count my footsteps but I would say in my head a lot of the time you do know where you are in your property after you've been in there for so long. I'd agree with you 100% there Wayne and that mind pattern you so admirably described which is referred to in psychology as spatial awareness being aware of one's own environment is absolutely crucial to any of us living with sight loss. Now, several things have stood out to me during the course of this interview. One thing in particular, and that's your ambitious spirit. You've not been afraid to try anything new. You've always been solution-focused. And I wondered whether trying rather than getting it wrong is what's more important to you here. 
trying is very important. I think it would be very hard for me to say, I give up and I'll let someone do it for me. My dad has always given me that fight to say, you keep fighting, you don't stop. If you if you get knocked down, you get back up, you keep fighting. Sight loss knocked me down. I'll get back up and I'll start fighting. Having a transplant knocked me down. I got back up and it's time to fight again. Another transplant and I've got back up and I'm fighting again. And I would say all of my life I've had to fight. It might be a different fight than everyone thinks. No, it's not fisticuffs with someone. But it's the fight for life that I find exhilarating. I enjoy fighting for what I find most precious. How have you come to look upon the past 10 years? I sit and think sometimes and I think, how did I get where I am today? There's many times I'll sit there and I think to myself, I remember I can't do anything. I gave up with my phone. I didn't use a mobile phone for two years. If I needed to go anywhere, I was I was in a car with one of my family. They'd take me. It was always hospital. I never felt like I could do anything on my own. I lost my independence. I'd say as the years have gone on, I've, I've amazed myself in where I've got to, like going from losing my sight and living with my brother to eventually living on my own. And step by step, it's not been a quick journey, but bit by bit, I keep building on my own confidence. And I say, to me, every little thing I learn to do is another step in the right direction. It might just be washing dishes, but that's something new to conquer. It's a step in the right direction. It's a step to independence for yourself. Oh, absolutely. And in terms of your plans for the future? I I want to start living again. I want to start travelling again. Due to this COVID, we've all been stuck in the the houses at the moment. And due to my health conditions, I don't want to risk getting myself out there and catching anything. So right now, I feel like my life's a bit stagnant and that's I'd say that's the way that my mindset's going. I do want to go abroad. Have I ever done it after losing my sight before? No. Do I want to travel with someone? Not really. Would it be scary? Yes, definitely. But I guess the future for me is just try push some boundaries. I'd say I have still got things I need to conquer within myself. I still got pushed myself with my confidence. I would like to be fit. I don't know about any other mountains. It's just working on me, working on my life now and trying to help me go forwards. Could it include um, counselling? Because you were involved in youth work and worked a lot with children in the past. Might it be something down that road you'd like to go? I'm not certain. When I was a residential residential social worker before, I loved the job. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. But at the same time, I would say it was a very hard job and it was hard for me to switch off. I think I care too much to do something like that. I have wanted to do counselling courses. So 
who knows? It could be something to do with counselling courses. But you're also an entertainer, so comedy could come into it. Something on the stage, perhaps. I can see you there. <laughs> yeah, I've got to admit, my hobby is getting in front of a camera or going out with a camera and videoing. I do enjoy it. I am laughing a lot. I like to hear people laughing. I think laughing is the best medicine ever. Depression holds you back, laughter moves you forwards. And as I keep saying, life's all about going forwards, so I'm laughing my way through life. Wayne, that's absolutely fabulous. And whatever it is you decide to do, I wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you for letting me tell my story. And now we've reached that penultimate moment in the programme where I hand over to my guest once again for them to play out with their legacy track. This is a track which they feel best sums up their life. Over to you, Wayne. Yes, I believe it's a track called Give Me Everything by someone called Pitbull. It's mainly the words just say a lot about me. And the song is from the past when I was driving. It was summer. It were happy times when I was enjoying my life as much as I possibly could, as I am today. Me not working hard. Yeah, right. Picture that with a Kodak. Or better yet, go to Times Square. Take a picture of me with a Kodak. Took my life from negative to positive. I just want you to know that. And tonight, let's enjoy life. Pitbull, Naya, Neo. That's right. Thank you for listening to this edition of Against the Odds, the motivational podcast celebrating the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email ifl at philip-anderson.co.uk or visit the Against the Odds page on the philip-anderson.co.uk website for more information and to complete the guest interviewee questionnaire. This podcast is the property of Philip Francis Anderson. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited other than the following. We welcome you to download and play the podcast and share with others for personal use. Please acknowledge Against the Odds podcast as the source of the material. You may not, except with our express written permission, distribute or commercially exploit the content.